Well, as I mentioned this evening, we're in the confession again. We're looking at the London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is our church's doctrinal statement, which is a summary of biblical truth, so bringing together some of the most foundational truths of the scriptures, putting them in one place for us. And this evening, we've come to the, to the chapter on free will, chapter 9 on free will. In Acts chapter 15, there is a very important council that takes place, the council at Jerusalem. And that council was called in order to determine an important doctrinal matter, what to do with Gentile believers. The topic tonight has nothing to do with what to do with Gentile believers, but in that sequence of events leading up to the council of Jerusalem, Luke, in Acts 15, he says that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with certain others who were teaching a different doctrine. They had no small dissension and debate leading up to the council at Jerusalem. Well, as we come this evening to the topic of free will, it's safe to say that this doctrine also has been the center of no small dissension and debate throughout the history of the church. This evening, we will not jump into all of the dissension and debate. Uh, so if you came this evening knowing that we were going to talk about free will and were excited because we were going to talk about Augustine and Pelagius, sorry to disappoint, we won't. Uh, or if you were hoping that finally Calvinism would be pitted against Arminianism from the pulpit, uh, we are Calvinistic in doctrine. But I'm not going to get into the Calvinist and Arminian debate tonight. I know some of you may be disappointed to hear that. Rather, we're going to try to keep it simple. We're going to go to the scriptures. And we're going to try to see what do the scriptures say when it comes to the doctrine of free will, of the will of human beings. I want to start by opening up to a passage in Luke, a familiar one, I think, for many of us. Luke chapter 6, in verse 43 to 45, Luke 6, 43 to 45. This uh, passage has brought to my mind the song on my kid's uh, CD that is based on this, Apples Don't Grow on Pear Trees. Anyway, maybe... Apples don't grow on pear trees. Suppose an ice staple, a cherry to a maple. No, 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 no. Um, you can't stape cherries to a maple, and apples don't grow on pear trees. Jesus is teaching that a tree will always bear the fruit that's consistent with the kind of tree that it is. So Luke chapter 6, verse 43. He says, For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit. Nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. So what Jesus is teaching there is pretty straightforward, isn't it? He's basically just teaching that a tree will always produce the fruit that is consistent with its nature. And in the same way, a person's life will always bear fruit that's consistent with that person's nature. If our spiritual condition 
is one of holiness and righteousness and truth, if that, if that fully characterizes our spiritual condition, then we would expect the fruit that that kind of spiritual condition produces to be holiness and righteousness and truth. If, on the other hand, our spiritual condition is one of sin and unrighteousness and corruption, then we would expect it to produce the fruit of unrighteousness and sin and corruption. As we consider tonight the doctrine of free will, I hope we'll see that the will follows that same pattern. God has given each and every one of us a will. And our will is free, or it's at liberty, to choose and to act upon its desires. Your will, God has given you a will, he's given you the ability to choose, make decisions, and you will always act upon your own desires, your choices. But what we'll see as we study this doctrine in the scriptures is that though your will is free to act upon its choices and desires, your will will always desire what is consistent with your spiritual state, your spiritual condition. You're free to act according to your desires, but you will always desire what is consistent with your spiritual state. That's really the thesis for tonight when it comes to free will. Our will will always act in a way that is consistent with the state of our soul. So now, before we jump any further into that concept, I want to go ahead and clarify what free will doesn't mean. Uh, So when we talk about free will, what we're not saying is that you have a will that is completely autonomous from the sovereignty of God. When we say you have a free will, we're not saying that God is no longer sovereign over or even in control over the events in creation such that the ultimate determining factor is your decision. Free will does not put you in the same uh, seat as God. It doesn't put you on the same level as God. He is the only sovereign ruler. And even when it comes to the decisions we make freely according to our own choice and desires, those decisions still fall within the sovereign rule and reign of our creator. And so we've seen that tension throughout the study of the confession up to this point, this tension of the sovereignty of God. There is nothing that happens in God's creation that is outside of his control or even his sovereign decree. He has declared before the foundation of the earth all that will take place in his creation. And yet at the same time, you and I are responsible agents. We are responsible for the decisions we make. We've been given a conscience We've been given an intellect. We've been given the ability to reason and make decisions. And we are responsible for the decisions, the choices that we make in life. Both are equally true. God is sovereign. You are responsible. We can't work out all of the details of how that comes together, but we know they're not in contradiction with one another. God is sovereign. You are responsible. And so this evening, when we talk about free will, we're not saying you are autonomous completely from the sovereignty of God such that what you do God has no say in. That's not what we're teaching. Rather, we're teaching that God has given you a will, and the freedom of your will means that you are free to act according to your desires. No one is coercing you to choose or to act in a way that contradicts your will. If you look at the bulletin, you'll notice a chart on the inside, uh, on the the right-hand side there. John Allen gave me a version of this chart uh, last week, I think maybe the week before, um, and, and I've adapted it for the teaching this evening. I found it really helpful. 
If you find it helpful, then you can thank John for that. If you don't find it helpful, you can blame John for that. But if you look at the top, there's definition, and you'll see basically what I've uh, said so far. Free will is the liberty and ability to act upon our own desires and choices. Free will is the liberty and ability to act upon our own desires and choices. You jump over to the left-hand side and read the first paragraph of this chapter of the Confession. That's basically what it says. That definition is just a paraphrase of the first paragraph. God has endowed the will of man with natural liberty and the power to act in accordance with choice so that it is not forced or determined by any necessity of nature to do good or evil. So the scriptures repeatedly demonstrate all throughout, really, almost on every page, that we have a will and that we are responsible to make choices with our will. I'll just take some examples. Joshua 24, the end of the book of Joshua, getting ready to lead them in, uh, so having led them into the promised land. Joshua now giving a, an exhortation to the people of God, looking out at the nations, seeing all the gods of the nations, the false idols that the nations are worshiping. Joshua says, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. He is laying a burden of choice on the heart and the conscience of every individual present. You choose today whom you will serve. Man has a will. He's responsible to make a decision. Deuteronomy 30, something similar, where God is saying to his people, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. I have set before you the options. You are responsible to choose life. You have a moral responsibility before God to choose, to make a decision. When John the Baptist is beheaded and Jesus is later describing the events of that in Matthew 17, he says, comparing him to Elijah, he says, but I say to you, Elijah has already come and they did to him whatever they wished. They, they beheaded John the Baptist not because they were compelled by some outside factor to do something against their will. Why did they behead John the Baptist? Because they wanted to. Why do you sin? Because you want to. Why do I sin? Because I want to. Whatever we do, we do because we want to. It's the desire of our heart. That's what the freedom of the will is. You have the power to act according to your own desires and choices. Now, in the, in the rest of the paragraphs for the confession this week, you'll notice that it walks through four different states of humanity or four different conditions of humanity. Paragraph two deals with free will in the state of innocence, referring to Adam's condition before the fall. Paragraph 3 deals with free will in the state of sin, all the condition of all mankind following Adam's fall prior to conversion. Then in paragraph 4, there's free will in the state of grace, which is following conversion, this side of heaven. And then there's free will in the state of glory, the uh, eternal state of the believer in the age to come. In each of those conditions, you'll notice in the chart on the right that there's one thing that remains consistent in each of those columns. So the state of innocence, pre-fall Adam, man is free to do as he pleases. He's free to do what he wants to do. In the second column, under the state of sin, man is free to do as he pleases. 
In the state of grace, man is free to do as he pleases. And in the state of glory, man is free to do as he pleases. In other words, from beginning to end, the way that God has created mankind is such that we always have the freedom to act according to our desires. We have a free will. But what we want to do, our will is shaped and it's determined by the condition of our soul. And that's what each of these paragraphs is pointing out. Depending on the condition in which we find ourselves, our will is going to desire different things. And so we'll work our way through each of these states and we'll see how they affect the doctrine and our understanding of the free will. So first, in paragraph two, in the state of innocence, man in his state of innocence has freedom and power to will and to do what was good, sorry, had freedom and power to will and to do what was good and well-pleasing to God. Nevertheless, he was subject to or capable of change so that he might fall from this state. So this paragraph's answering the question, what was the human will like in the first person that was created? In Adam's innocent state, what was free will like? There's a helpful verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 in verse 29 It says, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. God made man upright. He made Adam upright. What that means is that he made him without sin. God created Adam without a sinful nature, without an inclination to sin. He was righteous. He was upright. And so as one who was created without a sinful nature in uprightness, Adam was able to choose to do what was pleasing to God. He was able to choose what was holy. But at the same time, Adam's state of innocence was not permanent. It was changeable. And we know that's the case because Adam changed. He sinned. And so he had the ability to obey God. His will was able to do what was pleasing to God, but he also had the ability to sin or disobey God. He had the potential for disobedience. And so that's what the human will was like in the state of innocence. And you'll see on the, on the chart there that on the bottom two columns, he was able to choose righteousness, but he was also able to choose sin. So his righteous state was not a permanent state. It was a changeable state. As long as he was in his righteous state, his will was bent toward what was holy. But it also had the potential to sin. And then Adam sinned. And when Adam sinned, all of us sinned with him. And we were all cast into sin together with Adam. And so what's the will like now for you and I, according to our natural condition in Adam? What is our will characterized by in the state of sin? That's paragraph three. It says, man by his fall into a state of sin has completely lost all ability of will to accomplish any spiritual good which accompanies salvation. Therefore, as a natural man being altogether averse or actively opposed to spiritual good and dead in sin, he's not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself for conversion. So then again, over on that chart, you'll see the contrast between the bottom two columns, Adam's ability to choose righteousness has now given way in the state of sin to our inability to choose righteousness. We are unable to choose righteousness in the state of sin, and we're only able 
to choose sin. And why is that? Is that because God is coercing you and I against our wills to only choose sin? Of course not. We choose sin because our heart is wholly bent toward it. It's what we love. It's what we desire. And so we always act according to our desires. Again, what the confession's saying, and as we'll see what the scriptures say, is not that in Adam we lost our will. So when we start talking about the freedom of the will, there's a lot of recoil in some of our minds and hearts because free will sounds unreformed in thinking. But the scriptures demonstrate that we did not lose our freedom of will in the fall of Adam. It's not as though Adam was able to freely choose what he wanted, but now in the state of sin, we're no longer able to choose what we want. That's, that's not, the, that's not the, the way it is. Our will, your will, whether it's in the state of sin or whether you're redeemed this evening, your will is just as free as Adam's to choose what you want. The difference is that Adam, in his condition of uprightness, desired what was good and therefore chose what was good. And you and your condition of sin and me and my condition of sin prior to Christ, we desire what is sinful. And so we choose what is sinful freely of our own volition. We could do somewhat of a summary through the scriptures demonstrating the inability of our will to please God. Uh, I'll just mention a number of passages, a number of aspects of our inability. This is not thorough at all. There's far more that could be said. But the scriptures are clear about our inability in the state of sin. Again, we're talking about the freedom of the will. And I'm arguing that our will will always be consistent with our spiritual state. And our spiritual state in sin is one of complete spiritual inability. And therefore, our will follows course, and it always chooses what is displeasing to God. We are spiritually incapable of pleasing God in our state of sin. Romans 8, first, so the first category, if you want to, for those who are taking notes, if you want to write down the categories, there are four things I have listed here with regard to our inability. First, we are unable to submit to God's law in the state of sin. That's Romans 8, verse 7. In Romans 8, verse 7, speaking of the difference between one who walks in the spirit and one who walks in the flesh, he says, because the mind set on the flesh, that describes everyone who's not converted, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. The mind that is set on the flesh, any person who is in the state of sin, is hostile toward God because its mind is hostile toward God and it's unable to subject itself to his law. We could go to Romans 6 where we're told that the person who is in sin is a slave to sin, incapable, unable to do what is pleasing to God, unable to submit to God's law. So that's the first thing, unable to submit to God's law. Secondly, would be unable to please God. A person who is in the state of sin is unable to please God. Again, in Romans 8, the next verse, Romans 8, verse 8, it says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's impossible for someone who is in the flesh to please God because their will is entirely bent against him. We could go to Romans 3 as well. There is none who does good. There is not even one. There's not a single person who pleases God in the state of sin. Thirdly, 
unable to understand or believe God. person in the state of sin is unable to understand or believe God. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. It says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, and he cannot understand them. He is unbelieving, and he is not understanding. There's no spiritual grasp, no real understanding of the truth of God in the state of sin. And then fourthly, oh, we could, if you wanted another reference for unable to understand or believe God, you could go to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 4, that talk about being blinded to the glory of God in the state of sin. And then fourthly, unable to come to God. Someone who's in the state of sin is unable to come to God. Romans 3, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. Jesus in John chapter 6 explains that because we are bound by our opposition to God in the state of sin, because our will follows suit in that hostility toward God, we're not able to come to God apart from the Father drawing us to himself. John 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then if you turn the page over to verse 65, he says, and he he was saying, Jesus was saying, For this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Someone in the state of sin is unable to come to God. And that raises the question, why? Why is someone in the state of sin not capable of coming to God for salvation through Christ? Well, if you flip, if you're in John and you want to, you flip back a couple chapters to John 5. Why is it that we are unable to come to God in the state of sin? John 5, verse 40, Jesus is speaking here to the Jewish leaders, but it applies to all in the state of sin. I have the wrong reference in my notes, but it's here. It's verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Nope. Give me just a second. I'm going to find it. He says, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. But it is these that testify about me, he says. And then he says, but you refuse to come to me that you might have life. And he says, because you are unwilling. Anyone know where that reference is in John 5? 39. Thank you, Don. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. Did you say 39? You know what? I'm in chapter 6. Thank you, Alex. There we go. You, yeah, it was the right reference. I was in the wrong chapter. So John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. So the idea is this, is someone in the state of sin unwilling to come to God because like an NFL running back, God is stiff-arming them and keeping them at arm's length? Or is someone who is in the state of of sin unwilling to come to God because they themselves are stiff-arming God and pushing him away? Because they want nothing to do with him. Well, certainly the the scriptures would teach that it's the latter. 
in our state of sin, we don't come to God. It's, it's not, the reason for which we don't come to God is not that God is refusing to accept us and he's pushing us away. The reason we don't come to God is because we, we, we can't stand the thought of going to God. We don't want him. We don't want to submit our lives to him. We don't want the commands that he gives. We don't want to be subject to his authority. We don't want the life that he offers. And so in the state of sin, we're unable to come to God through Christ, not because he's pushing us against our will, but because we're acting according to our will. In the state of sin, our will is unable because it's unwilling to come to God. So in our fallen state then, our will remains free, to do whatever it wants, but it always wants what is consistent with its fallen, sinful nature. So again, on the chart there, you'll see man is free to do as he pleases, but his nature is now sinful. Therefore, he's unable to choose righteousness, and he's only able to choose sin. Now, to clarify, that is not to say that in the state of sin, man is completely void of any admirable quality, or to say that that a sinful person in the state of sin is incapable of doing anything noble. When we say that man has fallen in a state of sin, that he's incapable of pleasing God, that's not to say that he is incapable of having admirable or noble qualities. I just read an article about um, Robin Williams, the actor, and apparently Robin Williams, whenever he was being contracted for a certain role, being hired for a certain role, when he presented his own agreements for that contract, he would require that the producer hire at least 10 homeless people to work the set for every movie he ever filmed. And it's said that Robin Williams was responsible for over 1,500 homeless people being given jobs for movie sets. And that's, I mean, imagine the impact of that on the lives of these homeless individuals. I would imagine they were paid fairly decent for their role in each of those movie sets. And it It gave them income. It gave them, probably for many, a fresh start in life, the ability to get themselves back on their feet. Uh, It probably gave them a sense of meaning, of dignity, of value. They were working for their income. They were doing something worthwhile. They weren't begging on the streets any longer. Robin Williams was under no obligation, as far as I know, no legal obligation or no other compulsion to do that. Why did he do it? Why did he decide that he was only going to film movies if the producer agreed to hire 10 homeless people at minimum? It was an act of kindness. It was a kind, genuinely nice, gracious, generous thing to do. But again, as far as I know, Robin Williams was not a Christian. Unless he at the end of his life, gave his life to Christ and repented of his sins and put his faith in Jesus. Uh, As far as I know, Robin Williams lived and died as an unbeliever. And so what do we do with something like that? Is that a contradiction of the Bible's teaching on the man, uh, fallen man in the state of sin who's incapable of doing anything spiritually good? Well, no, because the Bible is speaking about what is good and pleasing in the sight of God. Yes, what Robin Williams did was admirable in many ways. I actually had a, uh, a new respect for him. I thought that that was a very noble thing to do. And it's a product of God's common grace. We're supposed to look at something like that and admire the generosity. 
But at the foundational level, while Robin Williams was showing kindness to his fellow mankind, he was, in a very real sense, still holding his fist up in hostility toward God. And so there is no way that a holy God can look, even on an act of kindness from one human being to another, and find delight in it when that creature is looking up at his creator and shaking his fist in rebellion against him in unbelief. So what looks good on a horizontal level, for a God who sees the heart... It's revealed for what it really is. Whatever the motive was, it was not motivated by love for God. It wasn't motivated out of a desire for God's glory. It wasn't motivated out of a desire to please God. It wasn't moved by faith. It wasn't an expression of faith. And we know that anything that's not in faith is not pleasing to God. And so no matter what we might see outwardly or horizontally in someone's life, God sees the heart. And in our sinful state, what God sees in the heart is the filth and stench of rebellion against him. Every human being who has ever lived in the state of sin, that is what characterizes our heart. And so to say that our will is incapable of desiring any good accompanying salvation, like it says in the confession, that's not to to deny that fallen men can do admirable things, but it is to deny that left to ourselves, we could ever do anything that is pleasing to a holy God. And so again, if you look over at the chart... Well, you don't have to. I've done it enough. You know what's there. We're characterized now in the state of sin. We were, at least prior to conversion, characterized by a radically sinful nature. And our will follows suit. We do what we want to do, but we always want to do sin because that's what's in the heart. A good tree produces good, good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. And all of us are bad fruit by nature, and our will produces bad fruit. All of us are bad trees by nature, and our will produces bad fruit. So we have liberty to choose what we desire, but we have lost, in the state of sin, we have liberty to choose what we desire, but we have lost the ability to desire what is holy. But what about now that we have been redeemed through Christ? If you're a Christian here tonight, you've been converted, what about you? What about your will? What's the relationship of your will to your current state as someone who is in grace? That's Paragraph 4 of the Confession. When God converts a sinner and translates or carries or transfers him into the state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage to sin. And by grace alone, God enables him freely to will and to do what is spiritually good. Nevertheless, on account of his remaining corruptions, the converted man does not perfectly and exclusively will what is good, but he also wills what is evil. A radical change takes place in the heart of every believer at conversion. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that everyone who is in Christ is a new creature. The old things have passed away, the new things have come. A radical change has taken place in the heart of every believer. That's not to say that every believer has some particularly radical experience in the moment of conversion. Uh, Every Christian is converted in different ways ways, or at least their experience of conversion manifests itself in different ways. Some have a very dramatic and radical conversion at a particular moment in time that they're very aware of. Others can only look back at the course of their lives and say, I didn't love Christ then, but I love him now. Something has changed. I don't know when it happened, but I know that he has changed me. We may not be able to point to a particular moment in time when it happens, but what is true of every Christian is that when God converts you, he radically transforms you in the inner man. And he makes you a new creature, a new self. 
And what the confession is saying, and what the scriptures teach, is that now that we have been made new, now that we are new creatures, we are actually able to freely will what is pleasing to God. What a thought. We who are born in sin and utterly incapable of ever doing anything pleasing in the sight of a holy God, in Christ, having been made new, are now able to do what is actually pleasing to a holy God. There are a number of places in the scriptures we could go in order to see this transformation and this new freedom that the Christian enjoys as a new creation. We'll look at just a couple of them. Ephesians chapter 4 Paul is talking about the new self and the need for us to understand the new self that has been created in Christ, the new self that we've become in Christ. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, he says, Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Your new self, the new identity, the new heart that you have been given in Christ is described as one that is made in righteousness and holiness of the truth in the likeness of God. If you're in Christ, you have a new identity, a new principle at work in your soul. No longer one of sin and depravity. That's not your identity any longer. Your identity as a believer is one who has been made new in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Romans 6 has a number of really helpful passages. I won't go there now for the sake of time, but it would be worth going to Romans 6 and reading. And Mark, every time you see the word dead, every time you see the word alive, every time you see the word crucified, every time you see the word slave, circle those words and look at what it's saying about your new identity in Christ. You who were once a slave to sin, It says, you've now become a slave of righteousness. You who who once were bound by sin, you have now been set free from that bondage to live, not under law, but under grace. And you who once presented your members to sin as slaves of unrighteousness, you now in Christ have the ability to present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. You're a new creature with new abilities. Your will is no longer bound to sin because your nature has been renewed. And your will follows suit. You have been made new. Therefore, your will also has been renewed. And you now are able to freely desire and choose what is pleasing to God. That's that's an amazing thought. But at the same time, though you've been truly redeemed and truly renewed, you have not yet been fully redeemed and fully renewed. We still live in fallen flesh, this side of heaven. We have to wrestle with the ongoing influences of remaining sin. This is why we're told in Galatians 5 that we must be intentional to walk in the Spirit so that we won't gratify or carry out the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5, I'll go there for just a moment. Galatians 5, verses 16 to 17. says, But I say, walk by the Spirit... And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Why must you as a believer be intentional to walk by the Spirit? Well, so that you don't carry out the desires of the flesh. But wait, I thought the flesh was put away when I was renewed. I thought thought I was a new man. I, I thought the flesh was crucified and done away with. Well, you are a new person in Christ. And yes, the very inner person of who you are, the identity that you now have is one of a new creature, a new creation. 
but you still have an unredeemed body. You still have sinful flesh to wrestle with. And so you must be intentional to walk in the spirit, he says, so that you don't carry out the desire of the flesh that remains. Because he says, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. There is a war of opposition going on. Yes, you are renewed by the spirit of God. And yes, you daily battle the, the influences of a sinful flesh. Yes, you have every ability to deny sin and turn away from it and walk in righteousness and holiness. But you can only do that as you walk in the spirit because the flesh wages incessant war against the spirit. The remaining effects of the flesh. It's not an equal battle. It's not as though the flesh is equally powerful with the spirit. He says, if you walk in the spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the sinful nature. It's not two equal forces. The spirit of God is far stronger (laughs) The spirit of God that indwells you is far more capable of helping you to overcome sin than the flesh is of causing you to stumble into sin. It's not an equal battle. If you walk in the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the sinful flesh. But as long as you are in this life, you will wrestle with the very real presence of the sinful flesh. It's like a nagging tag-along that just won't stop getting on your nerves. Everywhere you go, it's right there. It's right behind you. It's bugging you again and again with fresh temptations. Fresh incitings toward sin. And every day, moment by moment, we are to walk in the Holy Spirit and the strength and provision of God's grace so that we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. Every Christian is in the process of sanctification. Our wills are able to choose what is good, but our wills are still able to choose what is not good because we still battle the sinful flesh. On the chart, you'll see that the state of grace, the regenerate state... Man is free to do as he pleases, as he is in all of the different states. He's been renewed in his nature by the Spirit of God. He's a new creation, but he has remaining sinful flesh that he battles. He's able to choose righteousness, but he's also able to choose sin. But a better day is coming for the believer. Not only will you be able not to sin... But you will one day be unable to sin. Right now as a believer, you are able to, to say no to sin. But there is a coming, there's coming a day when you will not be able to ever say yes to sin again. In glory, we will still have a will that is free to do as we please. We will still act and make decisions based on the freedom of our will, our desires. But in that state throughout all eternity... We will only ever desire what is holy. There will never be an inclination of the heart ever again toward what is unholy. And so you will always do what you want, but you will only ever want to do what is holy. And that's what's described in this final paragraph of the confession. Only in the state of glory is the will of man made perfectly and unchangeably free to do good alone. Certainly, I think this is one of the things that the Apostle John must have had in mind in 1 John chapter 3 when he said, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. Certainly included in that statement is this idea of no longer being capable of ever desiring anything corrupt, 
only having perfectly holy desires, in the same way that Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, has only ever had perfectly holy desires. When we see him, we will be like him. We will have desires that are perfectly conformed to his desires. And we will fully love what he loves and we'll be incapable of ever wanting to do anything that falls short of his perfect and good purposes for us. And even better, that condition is permanent. It's unchangeable. So Adam was, in his state of innocence, he was changeable. He was created upright. He was able to choose what was good, but he was also unstable and changeable. He could potentially choose what was sinful. He had the potential to sin. But you and I, we, in the state of glory, we will be incapable of ever changing out of the state of uprightness. And we will have absolutely no potential to ever sin again. It is permanent, a fixed condition. And the reason it's fixed is because it is fixed and secured for us through the unchanging Savior. Because the Lord Jesus is our Savior, and because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and because we are forever united to him in our redemption, the state of glory is one that could never change for the believer. We will eternally be incapable of ever falling from that state of perfect righteousness in which we will exist in Christ, and our will will be incapable of ever again desiring anything that falls short of perfection. It's worth living in the light of that reality as a believer. As you struggle with your temptations, whatever they might be, as you face temptation in various circumstances and feel prone to stumble into sin, or even when you do stumble into sin and you're overwhelmed by grief and sorrow and repentance, it is helpful to remember that a day is coming when we will be fully set free from all the influences and effects of a sinful will. And so as Paul reminds us in the book of Philippians, we should remind ourselves that our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. There's coming a day when Christ will come, and in a moment you will be transformed into the state of his glory. And that glory is characterized by utter and eternal sinlessness. Praise the Lord for that. May he encourage our hearts and really help us to think uh, on, a, on, a, on a regular basis that we are destined for glory. I wish I would have chosen uh, I am bound for promised land. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand. That's a wonderful hymn. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and then sing I am bound for the promised land. The believer should sing to himself and herself every day. I am bound for a promised land. Where neither sickness nor poisonous breath, not bad breath, but sinful breath, could ever reach that healthful shore. What a glorious destiny is in store for the believer. Let's pray. Our Father, we do give you thanks for the hope that every believer in this room shares because of the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that by your grace you have united us to your Son when we were your enemies. We thank you that by your grace you have turned our stubborn and rebellious hearts away from our sin and you've drawn us to yourself in faith and in repentance. We thank you, Father, that we look forward to an eternity of living with the spotless Lamb in glory. 
And we look forward to the day when we will be fully and finally set free from all of the influences of sin and sadness and all the sorrow that comes along with life in a fallen and sinful world. We pray, our Father, that you would cause us to believe your word, cause our hope to abound, give us faith in all that you have spoken to us through your Son, that our hearts would rejoice in the eternal security that we have in Christ our Lord. We pray that you would help us by your mercy to will and to do that which is pleasing in your sight while we wait for our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.